Hi, you're listening to Theatre of Peace with me, Roy Layton. Today we'll be discussing what peace means to Mark Finnis, who is a bit of a genius when it comes to all things to do with restorative justice. Mark Finnis, um, tell us about what you do and why you do it before we get into this dialogue. I have a huge passion for this word restorative practice and relationship based practice, which I guess we'll unpick a little bit more over the next period of your podcast. But mm. I suppose backgrounds working in with children, families, communities in a variety of settings from criminal justice to education to social care. And um, really, really just believe the system potentially counts the wrong things. So as, as an organisation, we think that not everything we count counts and not everything that counts can be easily counted. Nice. So over the years, we've developed a framework to hang practice on that we would describe as restorative and relationship-based practice. And that's what we've been doing for a number of years, really, with huge excitement and um, learning as we've gone. Yeah, and I've, so I've seen the impact of your work, particularly with uh, when we did our work in, in, in Leeds. Um, and that's why I wanted to get you into this conversation, because I, I, I think you're, you're quite unique as an individual in many ways. Um, <laughs> some <laughs> won't share, as I'm the yeah. but the but the idea of being able to to, to straddle the the need for for rigor and uh, analysis and rational thinking with the necessity of being a bit more socially and emotionally aware. So I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you the same questions I'm doing with with everyone in this this series of podcasts, which is the first question is have you have you ever had an experience of, of connection or a communication? You know, or a dialogue, if you like, that you've not been able to explain rationally uh, or with a traditional cause and effect. And it can be with a person, it could be in a certain space, but basically you had a gut reaction and then you acted upon it and it proved to be the right thing. Have you ever had that experience? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think that's where we, 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 we're definitely alike. I think we underestimate the value of intuition and mm. gut feeling and gut reaction and you know, even going back to 2005, I was working um, in Liverpool at the time and I got offered a job to move to Hull to work for an uh, inspiring gentleman that we both know, Nigel Richardson. Yeah. And um, I got offered a year's contract to leave Liverpool and move my family to Hull. And um, my intuition said it was the best thing I could ever do to work with Nigel and Estelle McDonald. And um, that would be one very clear example of, you know, a phrase I've often thought is that anywhere leads to everywhere. And, and start somewhere and that feeling was that it was the right thing to do I suppose professionally it drew me into the vision Nigel had was for Hull to become a restorative yeah. city well the bit that really has always interested me is the whole system systemic stuff as well as the behaviors that would sit in it okay. so lots of people said you're only going on a year's contract and I was like that's the job that's where I'm meant to go next and you know that's one example really where I think connecting with Estelle Paul Carlisle Chris Draker and Nigel Richardson, it, it felt right. And I often describe with people, engagement takes three forms or connection takes three forms yeah. for me. It's physical, it's mental and it's emotional. Um, and quite often we rely on the physical connection of you and I being in a space and you and I have got different connections because we know each other. But is being in a physical space, people often describe as people being engaged, connected. You're only physically connected by being. And I think for me, the intuition is more about an emotional and a mental stimulation as well. It moves me to a place of wanting to follow that that feeling. Yeah, and I think the the whole coming back to to uh, Nigel. I mean, his mantra was only connect when we were doing the, the work and lead. And I think yeah. that's really what we're exploring here. And if you can connect with someone, but that connection 
and we're going to explore this in terms of transrational because that's a work that I'm doing and but I realize when I'm having conversations with people they go transrational I'm sorry you've lost me <laughs> so that's why I, I wanted to explore you know what do you think the word transrational means what, what how would you define that I mean, I probably would have used the phrase you just used a, a moment ago about connections, mm. you know, is, um, I mean, when you use the word trans, I always want to move me thinking into transactional analysis, you know, the transactions oh, yeah, that yeah. take place. You know, I often think some things are transactional and some things are relational. Some things are situational, you know, if it's on about situational leadership as well, whether that's coaching framework. But I always draw it back to the, the, the word connection. And I don't know whether you're familiar, Roy, with um, Peter Block, Mm. Um, but he's got a quote that I use a lot and reference, which is um, connect before content. And, and I think the moment in the space um, that you connect with people before we get into the content, whether that's a teacher in a classroom greeting students at the door with a smile, good morning, lovely to see you. Whether that's a leader holding a meeting and everyone comes in and has a check in by the water cooler, grabs a cup of tea or coffee and we start a meeting, we would always suggest in some type of circular space so everybody can see each other, etc. But I'm always interested in is how do we create the conditions for that connection to take place so then we're able to transact and, you know, and so on. I think that the creating the conditions uh, is, is, is what we do. I mean, we both work in the area of art and science. And, and in science, the chaos is known as sensitivity to the initial conditions. If you are not sensitive to the initial conditions, then at some point, whatever your journey is, it's either, you know, the wheel's going to fall off or you're not going to get there. And uh, again, the, the, the only connect uh, quote is from Howard's end, I think. Importer, yeah. which he says only connect living fragments no longer and so if we if we explore those those fragments uh and the the simple act of asking a child how they're feeling massive in some cases but if you if you don't get that connection like and those connect those conditions right and transrational work whether or not it's peace building whether or not it's um uh restorative approaches whether or not it's teaching and learning requires transrational now transrational is the stuff you can't see the the in, the intuitive the spiritual if you like whatever not not religious necessarily but the 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 gut feeling the emotional as well as the practical the ordered the the measurable um so those those two requirements are central at the beginning of any engagement whether or not you do a workshop or you're running a whole program and if you rem if you take one of those out, if you if you're just if it's a big loving, <laughs> and we have a fantastically creative experience, but there's no rigor to it, it's fun. But uh, and and I and I coming from the arts, and I know the dangers of allowing theatre for education companies into your into your schools. Um, and I've even got a photograph of me uh, in my first job at Salisbury Playhouse. I've got a photograph of me taking the shoes off children in a primary school because I was playing the, I was playing a character a right man superhero and they, they would write they would describe the character and I would become it and they would always write naughty and if you're naughty you just and there's, there's a photograph of just taking all the shoes off these this year nine front row and putting them in a bin and that was great for me great for the kids but I looking back on it I think how those teachers would have gone you total 
you know, hype the kid, <laughs> hype the kids up, and then and then leave. Um, so the idea of having creativity without structure or purpose is as dangerous as having structure and purpose without creativity. So how do you, in your work, and do feel free to to um, to refer to your fine book in your response <laughs> to this? How do you? Um, apply a transrational approach in your professional and your personal life. How do you how do you get that balance in the work that you do? Well, well, I, I mean, it's such a big question, isn't it? I think on a very practical note, you talked about connecting with people. I mean, we articulate very clearly around three P's to our work and mm. two main P's, but the three P's are personal, private, and professional. We're not suggesting anyone at the early stages should bring their private selves to work, but you've got to bring your personal and your professional self. Because if you just connect professionally with a student, for example, if we're thinking of schools context, and we this could be any context, but is if you just connect academically through the structure you're describing rather than the play, the emotion. Like I love football, I love buying trainers. You know, I, I, you know, I love an ice lolly, as we call them in Liverpool. You'll probably call them a lolly ice because it's all a little bit strange. But it, um, Down in West. We also talk. We also talk about going to Asda, and there's no the in Asda. It's just Asda, but we make it up in Liverpool. But on a serious note, is the I think if we're not careful as professionals, we keep up the professional front and we don't bring ourselves to work, and we we keep up the the mask. Whereas I suppose what you're asking me is, I think the word authenticity is key. Yeah. You know, I'm immature at heart. I, you used the word naughty and I didn't want to interrupt you before. I would definitely describe you that in a really positive way and um, back that up with fun and, 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 you know, and even watching your recent um, amazing performance with your daughter, which I've watched about 10 times okay. online, is um, it's just a beautiful sight, but it's playful and it's, it's, it's so many messages through that on an emotional level. But I know your academic brain, but that's watching you in a mix of playful and academic. So... Mm. For me, that could be about the, the the conditions we create. And I often think about marginal gains in sport and business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather than trying to do things 100% better as a facilitator, coach, trainer, I'm looking at what are the 100 things we can do 1% better about the structure. So okay. the aims, the objectives, the learning points, the framework for the day, the why, the how, and the what. But then I'm also interested in the play, the games, the snacks, the seating arrangement, the room, the venue we book, the way we dress, the way we interact, people sitting on the floor rather than behind a boardroom table, somebody taking the shoes off an hour into a course and noticing those, what we call those small ripples create big mm -hmm. waves. So we, it, sorry, I think I just, I just hi highlight that point because I think that is such a nuanced approach. I mean, because it is the little, we, we have this idea that we want to get, if we've got that excessively, and rational uh, mindset. We want to get from here to there. Okay, but if we have a transrational, we're actually interested in the journey, but also recognize it's not about getting to a particular spot. It's understanding and uh, the dynamics around that. So, because once you've got to that spot, actually you need to find another spot to go to. And I think that the marginal gains approach is perfect for this because it is about, we're not, we want, we want, the people that we're working with, whether or not they're students, whether they're their communities, to create a culture of um, complex adaptive systems. Yeah. Okay. Which means that they've got to be able to engage with the chaotic systems, 
of and then not chaotic in a, in a kind of you know negative way which i mean the, the word chaos has been hijacked uh, as a negative it's not it just means regularity without predictability but you can't get a chaotic system without having the complicated systems the order the structure the like yeah. and you can't really get the complicated ones unless you get your simple systems right yeah. So, but understanding the necessity of rigor and process at the same time as the flexibility just to play and adapt is something that, again, I've seen you doing your work brilliantly, but that is, that is where the, the challenge lies. Because we see in our society at the moment in education, in politics and economics, a kind of obsession with the rational uh, and I, you know, Ian McGilchrist's work, the, the, the master in his emissary, you know, he argued, and his film, The Divided Brain, which I'd highly recommend, talks about, we now, we can see the impact now of becoming excessive in terms of our rationality. We see the impact in terms of our economics, in terms of our politics. And so as someone who has um, mastery of this, which you do, um, the ability to step in and out and be in a constant process of learning. I've known for, for some years now. And the idea is there's always something there. So, oh, that was interesting. How can we, how can we adapt? I think that mindset of, of continual improvement of Kaizen, if you like, is so vital at this time, particularly you know, post-COVID and schools going back and some schools wanting to go back and do it, you know, put the school back as it was before COVID and others realizing there ain't, putting this genie back in the box. <laughs> what advice would you give to someone who either intuitively or rationally knows they've got to get this balance right within their professional or personal? What, what advice would you give to someone who wants to be more transrational in terms of their, their approach, but may be feeling a little bit anxious about it? What, what advice would you give them? Uh, I think terms of advice, uh, I, we, I always think that the important part is, um, is listening to people with the intent to understand rather than with the intent to reply. So the, the bit in the space and, and listening to what's not being said, in other words, being present, you know, and, and some of that goes back to the early part about being connected to people. So we, um, we, have a, we have a quote that, well, I have a quote, I'll own it in a training space, a facilitator space, working with communities, children, that the removal of threat is not the same as the creation of safety. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I get really frustrated when people say, oh, we did ground rules at the beginning. So we've now got a flip chart on the wall and it's now a safe environment because we spent five minutes asking people, what do you need from me for this to go well? So the key bit is I'm not suggesting we shouldn't ask people what they need. I'm suggesting we should ask people what they need. But that doesn't mean, first and foremost, people feel safe enough to say, I need to do this or not do that. Mm. So I think the bit we want to do is continually revisit what's not being said in the room and also what is being said in the room. I, I also would put something in myself around, you know, we always talk about culture in organisations or trainings or spaces culture exists in every organization in every school but is it by design or is it by default yes and you know i think there's a risk with defaulting but i also want to link that to the earlier question you asked me is that you have to adapt to the, the group because it will look different an hour in it will look different two hours in you know after lunch it's very different again and so on and so on if we do seven sessions with groups now rather than three solid days and it's really interesting watching the change in the relationships and the transactions and the, the content as well as the um, connections that are happening. Mm. 
I mean, a little example might be our common grounds, Carmanna Community School. We've both um, done a lot of work with the inspiring Simon Flowers and Lucy Lakin and other brilliant people there. But I remember doing the first training on restorative practice there, and I think it might have been about 2011, 2010. And then um, we'd had a number of meetings planning the training, and I started to, to facilitate and deliver the um, whole school inset day about quarter past nine. By quarter to ten, I stopped the training, and I said to the group, everything I have planned is not going to work for you based on what you're telling me already. And I looked at Simon with a bit of horror in my face and said, I don't think what I've got planned is going to work for your skill because you're so far accelerated on. Uh, and what we were doing was, is moving the implicit to become a little more explicit. Yeah. So cutting a long story short, you're asking about a practical example of advice to give to somebody. If what you're doing is not working, I would suggest you stop and pause. Because the act of being vulnerable, as Brené Brown talks about, the two words, vulnerability yeah. and courage, I felt really vulnerable in that space as somebody who was seen as facilitating the day to stop and say, why I've got plans not going to work for you, we need to change. And I'll never forget the feedback from Simon, and um, hopefully he, he remembers this, but we talked about it a couple of times. He said it was quite a powerful moment for him to realise that I realised where his school was at. And I think some of that's about presence, and I think, you know, if what you're not doing, if you're doing is not working, that's not just your responsibility. It's how do we collectively group together to now adapt the day to meet your needs. But for us to still tick all of those learning objectives you asked me before, yeah. I still want to talk to you about high challenge, high support. I still want to really structure restorative conversations, circle processes and so on. But I think sometimes as facilitators, we take that whole responsibility. Whereas if you create the space, you start to get people working alongside each other with shared responsibility and so on and so on. I think that's a brilliant answer. And I think Carl Manor is, is su such a, a good example of, um, uh, of, of the school that's gone through that process of getting simple systems and they do their check-in, their check-up, check-out. They do their, their um, weekly meetings with all staff and all kids. And so it can be done. And they, 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 um, move through the simple into the complicated through the chaotic and the fact that yeah. their their school is yeah the, the behavior is managed by the students which is just brilliant and so it becomes complex so so, so when we turn up um, as practitioners with a with a structure that we would normally do and realize that the the client or the group of students or, or people are in a different place then you're right it has to be, okay, let us deal with the reality of what is happening here rather than, well, I planned this, so I better go and deliver it anyway. Yeah. And, and vulnerability is an, in, is, a, is, it's an interest, it's an interesting one because vulnerability is um, in a lot of professional environments kind of <laughs> avoided because it's perceived as being weak. Yeah. And I would argue very strongly that vulnerability without and that goes back to your three p's you don't to get you only don't get your private but your personal and your professional but there is there is some strength in that vulnerability of saying i don't know this or the i think i just need to to review this because actually that's what we're asking of our of our students and we're asking of our staff is actually um, creating a, a, a vulnerable state. And I've got, I've got a quote. Um, you referred to the, the, the 
the the piece of my daughter at the dance piece, which I yeah. put in as part of a uh, when we do um, uh, conflict transcend work and peace building work, and we look at the role of the arts to create the conditions. Yeah. So, so the re the reason why that dance is there is like I would use this or something similar to create the conditions for people to go. Oh, that was that was quite nice. And then we unpack it because yeah. a lot going on. But there's a quote by. Uh, that I included in, in my essay to go along with that by um, a couple of academics called Brant Muir and McKenna. And they, they say, vulnerability repositions knowing and coming to know in a co-creative, dialogical and communal process of discovering and generating knowledge that is at once cognitive, emotional, embodied, transrational and intuitive in practice. Vulnerability in education is a radical stance of not knowing and humility in a process of honest recognition of the profound and reverent mysteries and challenges of life. Um, and I think just to, to, to finish off our conversation, although you do come across as a bouncy scouser. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> some, Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, but what you also bring is a huge amount of humility. And, and, and if I dare use the word grace, I think watching you in practice, it's, it's although there's the, the video of me and my, my daughter dancing is, is, it was lovely for us, but actually when you see a practitioner of your skill at it, it is like a dance. It is a, it is a beautiful, uh, but it is, you can't do that without being light footed and agile, both um, in body, in mind, in heart and soul. It's been lovely speaking to you, Mr. Finnis. You as always. You take good care of yourself. And, and uh, you good luck with the book. Thank you and good luck. Yeah, good luck with everything you do. Thank you. See you, mate. Join me in episode two, where I'll be talking with the lovely Olya Petrikova, who is an absolute genius when it comes to the power of play and the importance of compassion. <laughs>